Hello, how's it going? Hey, it is going all right. Uh, we are back in Missouri after the holidays and going into a brand new year. And I am excited and energized. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, as we record today, it is January 2nd, 2024. And I am looking forward to a new year. I'm looking forward to reestablishing routines. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm super excited. So, and super good to be recording again. We have taken a bit of a break for the holidays and I've missed doing this. Yeah, me too. I always am intrigued. You know, it has been 80 and change episodes that we've recorded of this. And it's interesting to me that I enjoy it every time, even now. Right? Yes. Well, and just a few moments ago, we did our pre-recording checklist and we both, you know, the checklist helped us out in various ways. And I'm thinking, you know, we don't have this down yet, uh, but <laughs> I, that's just the nature of, I mean, that's why you put a checklist together, right? Exactly. Because who is it? Uh, it's the one of the organizational leadership guys, he says, your brain is the worst place to ever store information. Ooh, that's good. That's good. Well, and I was even just thinking about pilots, right? They do a pre-flight checklist. It's the same checklist every single time, but there's a reason why they have a checklist. Yeah. And I am super glad for that checklist because every time I fly, which is not super often, but not infrequently either, Every time I fly, I am reminded that I only partially believe in the physics that allows flying to happen. And so <laughs> I am mildly dubious of whether or not this whole flying thing is going to work. So yes, let's at least do it right. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, hey, what's on your mind? You know, I was sitting there this morning and just thinking about lots of different things that I am interested in chatting with you about in the new year. And one of the things that I was thinking about that caught my attention is a question that when I ask it, it's going to seem like I'm going off the deep end, but <laughs> I promise I'm not. I am still in the camp. But the question is, is Jesus God? Huh. And yeah. Right. So when I ask that question, I think there are two things that people might assume. Uh, one is that I already know the way that I want to answer the question, and I just want to make an apologetic offense. Uh, I want to make an apologetic offense. I want to. That tells you what I think about apologetics. Um, I want to make an apologetic defense of something I already know to be true. And that is absolutely not where I'm coming from. The other place is that I am somehow falling into the dark shadowlands of liberalism, and therefore I'm trying to suck you down with me. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's where I'm coming from either. It's just that this morning I started the reading plan that we we're working on fleshing out together just a couple of weeks ago. And this morning's reading in my reading plan is actually a large chunk of the book of Matthew. So I'm just starting Matthew. 
And as I listen to Matthew, first of all, I'm listening to it in the message, which is amazing. I have never listened through the message. And there are so many moments that just capture me about what Jesus is trying to say. I love listening to the message. It's brilliant. Hmm. But as I listen to the message and I listen to what Matthew is trying to say, if his primary concern is to convince me that Jesus is God, I'm not sure he's doing a great job writing his gospel. So this is a super fascinating statement because I have spent the last year and a half translating Matthew with my friend John, and I've been really impressed with all of his literary techniques and the ways that he is making his argument that Jesus is God. And so I have the opposite experience. So what leads you to say that in particular? Well, first of all, if I were going to make a statement about the identity of Jesus, I would say it, first of all. Like, right? Like, if I have something to say, I'm going to say it. And Jesus is God is not a direct statement Matthew is interested in making, which could mean either A, he thinks that we'll misunderstand even more if he says it explicitly, or B, he's not trying to say that. But I was really struck, like, for example, in the birth narrative in Matthew, there is this beautiful emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is born as a baby. There is this strong emphasis on the royalty of Jesus that everybody in the story clearly recognizes. But what it means, you know, there's the reference to this child is going to be born of God. That could mean so many different things. Mm. But for the being that is going to be born, Jesus, to occupy the same ontological space as God is not an overt part of that birth narrative, or at least not the way that I read it. And I'm not looking for it or not looking for it. I'm really just trying to ask myself, what is Matthew trying to tell me? And when I read that story, and as I read the stories going on, uh, I think I'm in chapter 9, 10, somewhere in there. There is clearly an emphasis on Jesus being a prophet, on Jesus being a king. But I'm curious, as an Orthodox Protestant evangelical Christian, I'm curious, as you have been reading and translating Matthew, what is it, you know, you said almost the exact opposite that you're struck by the, the literary ways in which he is trying to communicate this. Yeah. What well, about Jesus' identity? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm realizing as you're talking about this, I have theologically conflated a number of things. And I think Matthew is doing a superb job of showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the mm. coming Davidic king. And— mm -hmm. To me, that is a God title, because I have accepted the fact that Jesus is God. And so I've put all of those things together. But when you pull them apart, and when you say, okay, let's just, let's go from a first century lens that never dreamt that 
God himself would be the coming Davidic Messiah, then what about Matthew's account is showing not only that Jesus is the Davidic king, he's the Messiah, but that he's God. And that is a very different question, and one I was not evaluating Matthew for. And I actually agree with you that I don't think he's doing – it's not a main emphasis of what he's doing. Now, but I will say there's all these things that happen throughout the book of Matthew that seem to point to the fact that he's God. And there's all these moments where Jesus will do something, and Matthew just says, and everybody was amazed. Or it just like people were just shocked. And then he just moves on with the story. And so I almost feel like he is allowing the fact that Jesus is God to unfold. So he's coming really strong in the beginning with Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He's the rightful heir. And he's pounding that from the outset. And then he's allowing the fact that Jesus is also God to evolve throughout the text. And you come to that realization by the end of the text. Well, and I think I kind of already implied this a little bit, but I wonder if perhaps what is going on is that Matthew and all of the gospel writers, because I don't think it's just Matthew. You know, if we were to jump over to Mark or Luke, I think we find the same issues. I wonder if there is a concern about the word God being too loaded of a term. He doesn't want us to import our definitions into his story. He wants us to gain a definition from his story. And so he's just not using the words. The same way the church that I was at in Boston we had a strong stance that we were not going to use the word Christian. It wasn't because the word Christian is inherently a bad word. It was because the word Christian is a loaded term. And so we stopped using it because we didn't want everybody to be able to come with their preconceived notion of what the word means. We wanted people to find the truth of the thing we were talking about, which preconceived notions got in the way of. Mm. So. If the gospel is trying to say, this is God revealed, what do we learn about God? Like, so for example, I love the fact that right after the Sermon on the Mount, the next chapter is Jesus healing a host of different people in different circumstances. He heals the centurion's servant from afar. He heals Peter's mother-in-law with a touch. He heals the leper and expresses immediate willingness to heal. If you were to tell me that chapter is compiled by Matthew to give me a sense of the identity of Jesus as divine healer, I could buy into that, right? Like that starts to make sense. Okay, so there's something about God that wants to heal that's willing to heal, that is interested in coming into the story and healing, I could receive that as, this is what God is like. Boy, that is different from my definition of God, which has an 
extreme emphasis on the transcendent and the distant and the other. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the possible synonyms for transcendent or distant or whatever could be universal. Not that I think that they're the exact same, but I think overall. And so that tends to be, for me, a a more remote idea. But Mm. I I think what particularly, Matthew uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And everything that Jesus talks about, he is talking about the reality, the coming, the presence of the kingdom of heaven. And the whole Sermon on the Mount that you just referenced is orienting his followers to say, this is what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven. And he spends three chapters just going through this. And then I I would like your recap there. Immediately thereafter, he goes and he heals a Roman centurion, a woman, and a leper. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's almost like saying, you want to know what life in the kingdom of heaven is like? It's all of these things. It's all, it places this enormous moral responsibility on you, but it also is bigger and more uh, all encompassing than you might imagine. And it even stretches to the least welcome in society. And so as we talk about how that reveals God, I think Jesus is showing us a God that is over everyone. Like everyone? Yeah, no, everyone. Even the outcasts, even the ones that are on the outskirts of society, even the untouchables, even the reviled enemy. Jesus, God, is over all of that. Well, and and the other thing I love bringing in the idea of the kingdom of heaven if you mix that idea of the kingdom of heaven with what I was saying earlier about the fact that Matthew's gospel surely sets the birth narratives up to declare that Jesus is royalty, there is no question that he is the king in the kingdom of heaven. Right. You know, you you can question whether he fits the generic God box, but you can't question if he is the king of heaven. And I love what that means. You know, you come to these stories, and what I want to do with these three stories, I want to find a thread that tells me, what do I need to do to get Jesus to do what I want him to do? If I'm being completely honest, that is where my head goes. So, okay, start with the Roman centurion. I am supposed to be confident he is able and almost deferential. But then you immediately switch over to Peter's mother-in-law, who is nothing. She's not doing anything. She's unconscious, or at least sick in bed. I mean, she is not earning it or proving her worth or character or anything. And then you're brought to this uh, leper who I think does the refocusing for me. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. There is a correction, at least for me, that happens in those stories from thinking about what do I need to do to thinking about what can Jesus do, which then really draws me back beautifully into the Beatitudes, which are the start of the Sermon on the Mount, which are emphatically about not me being able to prove my worth to Jesus, 
me being vulnerable about my need for Jesus. Is that character what we typically mean when we use the word God? Mm. I, I don't think so. No, to me, God is, as you said, more remote, more, I don't know. Mount Sinai, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This, this great being that almost, I mean, I don't want to trivialize God by saying this, but I, I guess the same fear and the same like wild unknown that the Wizard of Oz depicts of the, the great Oz. And so by the time you get to him, right, and you hear this echoing, booming voice, and it's that same sort of fear that I think of when I think of God. It's just this very powerful other. Yeah. And I don't, well, but I don't think that's wrong. No, absolutely not. I think this is why I think is Jesus God and is that what the gospel is trying to tell us is such an important question because if the Old Testament God of Sinai, which I fully believe in, if the God who struck down two of his earliest priests for using the wrong recipe in their incense, if that holy God is fully incarnate in the one who reaches out and heals the centurion servant and the the mother-in-law and the leper, how do we hold that all in tension? Yeah, this is where when I've, I mean, over the last number of weeks, as you know, I've been studying Isaiah and I feel like Isaiah has both of these kind of juxtaposed in his writing because on the one hand, you see the awesome terror of God and the punishment that he inflicts on Israel for their disobedience and threats of doing even more if Israel continues to be disobedient. And on it goes. But then, you know, you get like all of a sudden another chapter will crop up and it's like, but I will act tenderly toward you. You are my redeemed. Even if a nursing mother could forget her own child, I could never forget you. Like these types of tender moments and you go, wow, these two things coexist within the Godhead. And then you see yet another dimension of it with Jesus, with the very personal, very intimate, down-to-earth, meeting real needs kind of experience. And you go, okay, so this is a part of God too. It feels like you just keep turning new corners and going, oh, oh, there's more. Oh, oh, wait, there's more. And you just can't get your mind around all of it. Well, and it reminds me of a phrase that you introduced me to several years ago. I feel like the the sign that we are now passing is, welcome to the happy land of the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. There is something in all of this that at least invites us to a humility that says, I'm seeing something fresh here. He is better than I thought. He is more holy and more good and yet more kind and more gentle all at the same time. You know, I can't get him in a box. I can't mentally grab hold of him completely. And so in a very real sense, I am left throwing myself upon his mercy and I think this is what we sometimes try to do. We try to depend on our own orthodoxy, right? I've got it all figured out. Or our own orthopraxy. I'm doing all the right things. Whereas I think 
I am forced when I look carefully to not rely on either of those things, but to rely on him and his mercy. You know, I I never really thought about it in these terms, and I'm sure I'm saying something that somebody else has said many other times, and I just think it's original, but I've never really thought about the progression of the Bible in quite this way, but it feels like the Old Testament, you get this image of God, and you know, you get really one term, Yahweh, and we're just going to get to know Yahweh. And I think over time, the New Testament church has kind of classified Yahweh as God the Father. And then you open up with the New Testament, and you've got these four gospels saying, okay, you've met Yahweh, but now you need to meet the Son, and it's Jesus. And then you turn to Acts, and you see, okay, well, you've met God the Father, you've met Yahweh, you've met the Son, now you need to meet the Holy Spirit. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, you have the first century people saying, okay, wow, um, we just met all of the Trinity, now what do we do with that? I, I don't know if that's quite the right way to describe how the Bible lays it all out, but I do feel like for the last 2,000 years, we've been trying to wrestle through the implications of the fact that the Son and the Spirit are part of the Godhead, and we go, oh, wait, I have to adjust my conception of who Yahweh is in light of the other revealed aspects of himself. Mm. No, I think that's exactly it. I think it comes down to a willingness to do exactly that, adjust. And to take a lesson from the three or 400 years it took the early church fathers to be able to comfortably get this into a theological package. And I wonder, to some degree, if our ascent to the theological package short-circuits the process of wrestling that is, in its own way, more important to our orthodoxy. Yes, I really love that you said that, because even the way you introduced this conversation, right? You had to play a little bit of defense in saying, okay, yeah, I want to ask the question, is Jesus God? But look, I'm not a heretic, and I'm not just trying to set up a straw man that we can knock down easily. I actually really want to wrestle with this. And so often I feel like it's taboo, or it's just, no, you you either believe it or you don't. There's no in-between. Well, it's not that I'm in between. It's not that I'm doubting it. I just want to say, okay, well, if that's true, why? Or in what way? And what should I do with it as a result? It's not just as simple as, yes, I checked the box, I believe. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, I think we are so interested in dividing the world into insiders and outsiders. And so we want a fence. And the deity of Jesus is often the fence that we use. So we don't dare touch the fence because if somebody thinks you are even close to the fence, they'll assume you're on your way over the fence to the other side or you're not on the right side of the fence. And the problem with all of that is that it treats the deity of Jesus as a thing to believe rather than a person to engage with. And I think it's more important to engage with the person. And I think if you engage with the person, you will come to a deeper and deeper understanding of who he is and who he requires himself to be in relationship to you. Yeah. 
You know, this analogy of a fence, I want to run with that for just a moment. The house that I live in is on some property, and it had some fences on it when we got here. And some of those I've not touched in the entire time we've been here. But we had some chickens, and the chickens were getting eaten uh, somehow or another. So something was getting in through the fence that we thought was pretty secure. And there's a difference between just like, okay, I've got these fences, you know, in our case, a theological fence, right, that we've inherited from the previous owners. There's a difference between just like, great, the fence is there. And wait a minute, have I explored this fence? Have I, you know, walked all the way around this fence? Have I tightened the strands around the fence where it needs to? Have I loosened things where it needs to? Have I put a new gate in? Have I modernized this in any way? Have I made it fit for my present day application? Or is it just a fence that I got from the last guy? You're exactly right. Because when we hold on to the fence as if the fence is the thing that matters, all in capital letters, what we end up doing is eisegeting the text. Mm -hmm. We make the text say what we want it to say, rather than honoring the text's right to say whatever it wants. It sets the message. We do not. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think, something that's really important to me and why I end up asking questions like this. And for me, it's not even good enough to check the fence once in my lifetime. I've asked these questions before, but I have to come back to them over and over again to make sure that I'm letting the text speak rather than seeking to use the text to codify my own opinions. Right. Well, and even with what we were talking about before, about how big God really is, it's not as though we can take one pass at this information and go, yep, okay, I've got it. I, I understand who God is. We could literally go back over this ground a thousand times and grab something new every single time. Absolutely. Well, and I get worried. I have met a host of folks who do that exact thing. I totally get it. I have read that passage. I have wrestled with that thought. I know where I stand on that. I'm all set. And they worry me because, again, I think they're engaging with an abstract reality, a truth, rather than God himself hmm. as an, a person. And that may be idolatry. Hmm. So as you've been reading Matthew, and you're just, I know we're two days into the new year, and, and so you're two days into this kind of thought, but how are you being challenged to adjust your own understanding of God? You know, that's why I wanted to bring this up. A lot of that challenging is coming from this conversation. I can read the text and end up with questions, and I need to talk it out to figure out where I'm at. But I think for me, one theme in all three of those healing stories, Jesus wanted to go and touch the servant of the centurion. And he respected the fact that the centurion didn't find that necessary, and that was great. But Jesus' instinct was to go and touch the centurion, just like it was to go touch Jesus' mother-in-law, just like it was to go and touch the leper. Mm. I live in a world where I am the woman who sees Jesus passing by, and I have to wrestle through the crowd. And if I'm lucky, I'll jump for it and just barely manage to touch the hem of his cloak. But that's good enough, and it's okay. I think 
the real world is far broader than that, and it may be that God is interested in reaching out to me. Mm. And those words are so simple, and they sound so basic. That is not my instinct about God. Oh, boy, that was so good. Boy, I was affected by the way you said that. You're exactly right, that God's instinct very well could be to reach out and touch me. Mm-hmm. I could use that. Literally, that would be good for me if you did that. Um, yeah, me too. Hmm. And so the challenge, I think, for me is to be a little more confident about God's good intent towards me. Hmm. If If I live in a world where the Creator wants to reach out and touch me, that's a different world where I am a lot safer, not in the sense that bad things won't happen, but in the sense that, you know, to quote Paul, nothing can keep me from God's love. If God's love is actively seeking me out, which again, so obviously the point of the Gospels, so clearly a New Testament principle, but not something that has worked its way into the deepest places in my heart. No, for sure. And such a good thing to really wrap your head around for the beginning of a brand new year, right? If that Mm. set the stage for everything else you studied this year, man, what a good thing. I'll take it. That's for sure. So can I leave you with something a little more trivial to ponder as you go through the rest of Matthew? Please. So Dr. Reeves, whom we both had in college and that I just love. I don't know if you ever heard his theory that, you know, where it says you of little faith Mm -hmm. in the Greek, it's not you of anything. It's just little faith ones. And it's all one word, little faiths, little faith ones, oligopistoi. And Dr. Reeves takes that as though this was Jesus's nickname for the disciples. Mm. That's funny that you say that. I have a really good friend who grew up as a missionary kid in a number of places, but in part in Latin America. And when he came to reading the Bible in English, she was really startled by the way this particular thing was translated because it sounds very pejorative in English. And she's like, yeah, in Spanish, it does not sound pejorative like that. It sounds like a term of endearment. Mm. So it may be that English stinks at translating (laughs) that particular concept. Right, Um, right. Because it sounds for all the world like Jesus is just mad. Yeah. But in the Greek, it really doesn't come across that way. It's little faiths. Yeah. It, like you would make fun of somebody like, I don't know, stubby nose or something, right? Like just just some little nickname. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's awesome. I love the fact that that's actually a Greek concept because I have heard that thought from other places. That's amazing. Yeah. I expected it to be trivial. Not amazing, but all right, we'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm going to use that as a moment to turn towards our listening conversation partners here and ask, first of all, I would love to hear what, when you read the Gospels, what strikes you about them defining what it means to be God 
about the message of what you feel like the Gospels are trying to say about who Jesus is, we would love to have you be a part of this conversation and hear what you're thinking about, what you're struck by. And we would also love for you to share this episode with somebody else and for it to spark a conversation with you and your friends. So please share this in any way that you can, and we would love that. Yeah. And if you manage to have a quote-unquote forbidden conversation because it helps you to ultimately you know, adopt that theological fence as your own. Like, so good. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things that's been on my mind lately. But I'm curious, uh, what have you been thinking about? Yeah, so I just finished editing our episode on what we want to read in the coming year. Uh, so reading mm-hmm. goals for 2024. I just finished editing that episode. And you asked a great question at the end of that episode, which was, if you could focus on something for an entire year, and at January 1st of the following year, look back and say, man, I'm really glad I made that my focus this year. What would it be? And that was just kind of your general challenge to the audience. And I was like, huh, that's such a good question. I actually want to you know, sit with that for a moment. And I have a couple of different thoughts, but one of them is Hebrew. My Hebrew is passable. It's not great, but it's enough that my friend John and I, we can translate, and we have almost made it through the book of Esther now. And so it's been good, but there's just a lot that could be better. And I was thinking about it this last week, or just since re-listening to that episode, but I realized, are you familiar with Olive with Beth? Have I told you about this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually was just showing it to my wife this morning. Oh, wow. Uh, Cool. Uh, Yeah, Olive with Beth is great. For the listeners who may not be familiar, Olive with Beth is a YouTube video series that teaches you biblical Hebrew and assumes no other native language. The entire thing is spoken biblical Hebrew, and it teaches you the language as though you were a child. So they hold up like a horse and say, Seuss, Seuss, and they hold up like another animal and they'll say the name of the animal. And over time, the content grows as your vocabulary grows, and it's very interactive and very well done. There are, I don't know, 108 plus lessons in at this point, and they're making it free for anybody in the entire world to learn Hebrew because you don't have to know any other language before learning Hebrew. And I found a way to sync up her vocabulary per episode with a flashcard set that I have that has the first thousand words. So if if I could learn these 970-something words in this vocabulary set, then I would know every word that occurs in the Hebrew Bible at least 30 times. So I can take that set, link it up with her vocab per video, and I can continue watching Olive with Beth and have flashcards in my pocket to go along with it. And I should be able to take my Hebrew to the next level because I'm consistently engaging with it with her and I'm flipping through the flashcards. And then I think if I can manage it, 
I'd like to start translating the book of Deuteronomy because daily dose of Ooh. Hebrew. Yeah. So there's another great resource out there for those who have learned Greek or Hebrew and want to brush up or want to keep up. And that's daily dose of Greek or daily dose of Hebrew. And these are just two minute translations of a text. And so it goes through the original language, tells you how to translate it, parses a couple of verbs, talks about a couple of intricacies, and you're done. Two minutes every single day of whatever language you want. And so Daily Dose of Hebrew did a bunch of Deuteronomy, uh, the first 18 chapters. So I was thinking, gosh, if I could translate Deuteronomy, just a, a verse a day, and watch the accompanying video, and do this Aleph with Beth thing, I could spend 2024 getting really, really nailed down in Hebrew. So thanks for the great question, and I'm kind of excited. That's awesome. I'm excited to have you bring some of that biblical language learning to our conversations. That'll be really good. Yeah, I hope I can do it all. It's a lot to tackle over the course of the year. But man, if I could, by January 1, 2025, I would be very, very happy that I did it. Yeah. So those, I was looking at those this morning, and you can actually answer a question. Is the idea that you watch the same video every day for a week, am I remembering that right? Oh, with Olive with Beth? Yeah. So go on to her website. There is a study plan mm. for those who have 30 minutes a day, study plan for those who have 90 minutes a day. Like it will walk you through. And so they have worksheets and they have all sorts of different stuff and like a whole oh, watch. Awesome. Yeah. Like, so it's a whole schedule you can follow if you choose to. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what about you? What are you thinking about? You know, I was thinking about our conversation a couple of weeks ago about Psalm 91. And hmm. we were wrestling in the conversation. And then even afterwards, we were texting back and forth about sort of what is the hook for a sermon on Psalm 91? Do you remember this? Absolutely. One of the things that made me laugh as I continued to read and reread and meditate on Psalm 91 is that our conversation never fully took us into the last couple of verses where Yahweh himself is actually the speaker. Yeah. And I am deeply struck by the first thing Yahweh says in this text, which is, uh, and this is verse 14 from the ESV, he says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. You know, even what we were talking about uh, just a few moments ago about this sort of intersection of God as he's revealed in Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, the God of Sinai, I am struck by the intimacy and the image that this verse creates. Because he holds fast to me in love is such a beautiful image. And for it to be paired in the second half of the verse with because he knows my name builds this sort of mental image of someone who runs to God and holds on tight to God because he knows the character and nature of God. And God is conquered in heart 
by that kind of behavior. Mm. It just rocks his world. It is outside of the nature of God for God to allow someone to run to him, hold on tight because they know who he is, and then for God to say, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do in this situation. Mm, Yeah. I think it's really powerful. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to an intimacy that I think is very reminiscent of what you're talking about with what Jesus reveals. Mm-hmm. But I find it super fascinating. As you were talking, I know I'm I'm inverting the language of the psalm here, so it's not a perfect representation. But the text says, because he knows my name, I will deliver him. So this is because humans know God's name, God will deliver humans. But I'm going to invert that for a moment and go back to what you were talking about with the intimacy that Jesus reveals. It struck me as you were talking, I think of God as, of course, God knows me and God knows every facet of my life because God knows everything, which is a very different thing than sitting down and getting to know someone. Mm. And I think, yes, God knows everything. But God knows me in the way of sitting down and getting to know me, sitting down and living life with me or observing life with me or listening as I recite my life to him. That is an intimate form of knowing that I don't often ascribe to God because I see him as just transcendent. And of course, he knows me and everything about me because he knows everything. Mm. And to think that that's something that he wants. Right. Right? He wants to take the time. He wants to spend the moment to know me as I share myself with him. And conversely, he wants to be known in that same way. Well, and that's what I—it was the phrase, he knows my name, that really got—I mean, that's— I mean, okay, so we talked about this way, 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 way back about um, what is church? What What's the purpose of church? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you asked me about my perspective as a parishioner, what do I wish the pastor knew? And one of the things I said was, I wish the pastor knew me. And yes, mm-hmm. knew my name, but knew more than just my name, knew my story, knew what I was wrestling with, knew where I came from. If the pastor could know me as a human, there's something about like if somebody calls you by name, they are also addressing all of you, who you are. And that's what struck me about God. Yes, God knows my name, but he he knows my name. He knows my story. Mm-hmm. He knows who I am. Um, mm-hmm. and And in return, I know him. I know his name. I know who he is because we have spent this intimate time together. That's just that's just rich. Yeah, it really is. Amazing to me, we can have that whole conversation, and then I come back to the same exact chapter. It blows my mind all over again. Right. Yes. Mm. Again, why we're going to do the Summer in the Psalms series, because we just, there's too much there. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to miss it. Agreed. Well, we've reached the part of the program where we have to turn to the most embarrassing segment ever. 
<laughs> and this week, I will say we've taken it to a whole new level of embarrassment. This week's Which Josh question is, which Josh wants to see the end of a Hallmark Christmas movie? And that's me, folks. I'm willing to admit it, mostly. This makes me so ashamed to be your friend. <laughs> oh, it makes me ashamed to be me. So it works out okay. Yeah. Um, what happened? something we agree on. I, I don't know. I've fallen from grace. I don't know. But uh, we were just, me and my wife and my parents were watching a Hallmark Christmas movie because we had like 45 minutes between things and we were trying to watch a video and Apple TV wasn't streaming properly. And I don't even remember all the circumstances, but somehow we ended up watching this Hallmark Christmas movie. But the thing we were actually getting ready to do started half an hour before the end of the movie. And so we you know, turned off the movie, whatever, went on with our plans. And I know beat for beat every single thing that is going to happen in that movie. And I am still sad that I missed it. <laughs> I want to go see the end of the movie. Oh my and gosh. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'm having a whole crisis of identity over it. I <laughs> I bet you are. But it's this is the thing, right? It's spiritually complicated. This I mean Hallmark movies, they make money off of them for a reason. Like they've found the secret formula to get people hooked and to watch to the end and then start the next movie and do it all again. Like they found the formula. You just allowed yourself to be pulled in. I confess it, I did. And you know, there is something to be said for simple and heartwarming. Maybe those of us on our side of the fence are a little too jaded and a little too judgy. I don't know. You know, I have been accused of such things, so it's possible. And I am on that side of the fence too. I'm just judging me, whereas you're judging you. I'm not, I mean, you're judging me. I'm not sure which is which. Oh. <laughs> uh, you watched a Hallmark movie. I get to judge you. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, okay. I don't know if I'll have finished it by the end of next week, but uh, are we on for a conversation next week? Sans Hallmark? Yes. All right. So I'm not going to be able to force you into. Next Christmas, ranking Hallmark movies? Nope, nope, that one isn't going to happen. All right. Well, whatever lesser topic we're going to talk about next week, I'll talk to you then. Okay, all right. Bye. Bye.